We've already discovered how decentralization in principle was lost already with the constitutional settlement. It's not my intention here to rehash that same material for the loss of states' rights that we've talked about under county rights, though much of it is relevant. But we need to know more of the story. We need to know more details of some of the parts that I've mentioned in passing, uh, just in passing. What we've not covered yet, but very much need to, is just how systematic and premeditated that original takeover was. We're not dealing with patriots and patriotism at this point in American history. The war's over, and now it's time for some people in their minds to build a nation. And what we're dealing with here are the root causes, the root itself, and the progress of tyranny. Now, it's helpful to remember at this point that while great societies often appear to crumble overnight, very often the seeds of their destruction were actually planted long before. For example, when the Israelites demanded a king like other nations in 1 Samuel 8, God said to Samuel definitively that they had rejected him. And this episode began an era well, began the era of the kings in Israel. And yet this God-rejecting society, which was serving other gods explicitly, did not collapse immediately. Rather, it gradually decayed over centuries to the point that even its most famous reformer king, Josiah, could not totally spare it from judgment. This era of the kings ended when the people were defeated and carried away captive into Babylon. But what we often don't consider is that from the beginning of that first rejection of God and society to the decline and fall took over 400 years. In other words, the incipient cause of social decline, of social collapse, was present immediately. But its effects took centuries to manifest fully. Thus, while it may be illuminating to speak of the various episodes and periods in history, certainly in American history, of centralization of power, whether it be Woodrow Wilson's War State, or FDR's New Deal, or the Civil War, or whatever. It's not necessarily the most effective approach because it doesn't necessarily get to the root of the problem. It may, in fact, even be detrimental. For example, the Civil War debate, my goodness, can entirely consume the discussion with an endless variety of side issues. Slavery is not the least of them. And yet the issue of slavery, as important and as interesting as it is, uh, is not the core issue behind the centralization of government in American history. It was merely one episode, uh, the cause kind of in the center of one episode of it. Yet, it will, yet that, that issue will consume the entire debate and then breed several other side debates of its own. That's unfruitful. It's better to lay the ax to the root of the tree than to hack away at a thousand branches that always seem to grow back. So that's what we have to do. We have to get to the root. And that's going to require some digging, some sweat, some getting your hands dirty, but we simply have to get to that root. We can't solve the problem if we're continually trying to fix the wrong problem. We can't plan a proper solution to the problem if we're constantly misstating what the problem is or stating only part of it. For example, uh, conservatives and Christians today feel very free to con condemn Woodrow Wilson, to condemn FDR, Johnson, Obama, socialism, the Fed, and yet we remain timid or even defiantly opposed to criticizing even parts of the Constitution itself. But if the Constitution was the first great act of centralization in this land, the act which enabled and empowered all those subsequent centralizations in this country, exactly as it was predicted by its opponents, by the way, then it will do little good to clear away those subsequent acts alone to try to reverse those. If the root remains viable, the brambles will grow back. You know, the, the slogan, return to the Constitution, sounds nice and it would certainly do some good in the interim. But what good does it do ultimately simply to return to the top 
of the same slippery slope we've already gone down. So in regard to this project, I am not so much interested in debating the evils, pro and con, of the Civil War or any of its hundred partisan epithets like the War of Northern Aggression or of Southern Rebellion or whatever side you pretend to be on. I don't want to debate Reconstruction. I don't want to debate so much the Progressive Era, either in its Democrat or Republican permutations, which there were both. I don't want to debate any of those things. I want to focus on the root of the problem. And for that reason, I'm going to take this section to continue the story of centralization during the first generation after the constitutional settlement, adding on what I've already said under the heading of county rights. I want to hammer home just how systematically and drastically power was grabbed, power was centralized during that time, preparing the way, paving the road for all of the wars, all of the debts, all of the tyrannies that would come later. Now, since I've already told some of that story uh, of the ratification debate and the series of John Marshall's Supreme Court decisions, which gradually you know, solidified that worldview over every area of life, seemingly, that the anti-federalists predicted, I now want to cover a little different angle, more of the political and military side, mostly political, and, and those personalities. This will hopefully further drive home just how the nationalist takeover was systematic and it was premeditated, it was purposeful, and how it was the turning point for the country. Though the nature of that change, just like with ancient Israel, would only take place decades in the future uh, before it was uh, fully manifested. One of the prominent anti-federalist writers was the federal farmer we quoted earlier, Richard Henry Lee probably, pointed out uh, both the extreme degree of the change in government and the premeditated nature of it. Very early in the ratification debate, this is what he had to say, part of it, what he had to say. Quote, the plan of government now proposed, that is the Constitution, is evidently calculated totally to change in our time, our condition as a people. Instead of being 13 republics under a federal head, it is clearly designed to make us one consolidated government. This consolidation of the states has been the object of several men in this country for some time past. We need, therefore, to examine the goals and the efforts of the most prominent of those people that the federal farmer was talking about, the early central planners of this country. Now, while there were, of course, many that deserve attention, we can only have space here to deal with a couple of those. So we will deal variously uh, with some of the most famous, with Madison, Hamilton, and Washington, especially Hamilton and Washington. Now, among these, we will mainly concentrate on Hamilton's agenda. And as I've said, we've already discussed Marshall a bit, who was a partner in crime as well. Despite the enormity of his contribution, he was only the judicial wing of it when the real energy behind the Federalists was, was elsewhere. Well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, they were equal in their energies and they were concerted in their efforts, so they should, we should give them equal attention. Nevertheless, um, writing on the centen centenary of, of Marshall's death, uh, a leftist writer at the time, who was Max Lerner, he made this comment. He said, much of Marshall's career may be viewed as a process of reading Hamilton's state papers into the Constitution. So let's take that as a launching point. There's no doubt that there was no influence toward centralization of power more efficient, more effective, more energetic, all at the same time than Alexander Hamilton often praised today by big government conservatives for the tradition of so-called strong Hamiltonian federalism, uh, which was derived from his central role in writing the Federalist Papers, defending the Constitution during the ratification period. His system was anything but truly federal. He was the liberal progressive of his day, you might say conservative progressive of his day in some ways. In nearly every political sense considerable, except possibly for the idea of social welfare, which was not invented yet, at least not in the modern sense. 
Long before the convention, Hamilton had already displayed a dangerous taste for top-down coercive means of, of obtaining his goals. As a young soldier, uh, his, these instincts obviously served him well. He was a brave leader during the revolution in military combat. But in politics, those never quite left him uh, during the so-called Newburgh con controversy, conspiracy, for example, of 1783. The, re re the uh, Revolutionary Army had not yet disbanded, and it was not being paid by the Congress. And it refused to disband without its long overdue pay. Well, Hamilton suggested to Washington, while Congress was delaying on this matter, that Washington take charge of the army and use the threat of force and military dictatorship to persuade Congress not only to pay up, but then to start passing legislation to install what was his dream of a centralized financial system. Okay, this is crazy. And Washington, who was power hungry in himself, saw it as pretty much crazy. And uh, he responded to Hamilton in his letter as he said, quote, with pain, astonishment, and horror, and he explained uh, this way. He said, quote, The idea of redress by force is too chimerical to have had a place in the imagination of any serious minds in this army. In other words, the army probably wouldn't follow along with it. He, he continues, But there is no telling what unhappy disturbances might result from distress and distrust, distrust of justice. In other words, it's possible that it could happen. Quote, The army is a dangerous instrument to play with. Hamilton's dangerous disposition had developed already at an early age. He was a bastard child. He was orphaned at about 12 years of age uh, when his mother died also from a fever, and so he was left high and dry. He was fortunate to find pretty meaningful employment as an apprentice for a, a group of merchants, and he was so prodigious, so self-taught as a child his intellect and energy just completely drove him to, to improve himself, and he quickly rose to a position of responsibility. I mean, in no time at all. He was keeping the books, running the warehouse for these merchants who were sailing all over the world. He was age 12 when he was doing this. Now, despite those early accomplishments, despite that early promise he had as a businessman, he was bored, which happens with a lot of intellectual leaders. He was confronted with his boredom daily. He had dreams of fame and glory. In a letter from that time period when he was probably about 12 years old, he revealed this. And he dis disdained a life of common business when he was writing to a friend of his. He said, quote, I condemn the groveling and condition of a clerk or the like, to which my fortune, etc., condemns me. He went on to say that he would willingly risk his life to exalt his, quote, station and having been such a prodigious, self-taught young man, he had read the classics, he had read all the stories of fame and military achievement, and he knew exactly how to achieve the fame he wanted. And the primary way, according to the Greeks and the Roman writers, in many cases, was through warfare, success in battle. And Hamilton was ready to risk his life, he said, and thus he wrote to that same friend in that same letter, quote, I shall conclude saying, I wish there was a war. Now for a young man to be considering personal fame and advancement and already having plans best how to achieve it through warfare at age 12 is to say the least extraordinary. But to be discontent with a promising business, promising wealthy career, willing to die in a war just to achieve fame is the definition of a fool. It's not to call him a fool in the modern sense, but in the sense of a biblical definition of foolishness, to set aside the values of a steady wealth-producing career in order to lead and chase down a lust for fame in which you will have to shed other men's blood and possibly shed your own is, is foolishness. And we can't ignore the powerful role that the lust for fame played in the lives of America's framers. It was overwhelming, and we don't often hear about it. 
It was all consuming for these gentlemen. An historian widely respected by colleagues from various perspectives, various parties, a quite famous historian actually named Douglas Adair, was the first person really to alert the American history profession to the importance of this concept of fame. It reigned true for most of the famous founding fathers. Many of them said it explicitly, including Hamilton. Hamilton recognized in the Federalist Papers that, quote, the love of fame is the ruling passion of the noblest minds. He would second this motion later in his life, much later in his life, writing to an uncle of his, suggesting that the love of fame was a common spring of action for seeking public office. Now, after reviewing how this love for fame infused the lives of Hamilton and Washington and uh, others along with them, the historian Douglas Adair concludes this, quote, The love of fame and the belief that creating a viable Republican state would win them fame is part of the explanation of the elan of the tremendous energy, the dedicated and brilliantly effective political maneuvers by which a small minority of American leaders who were nationalists kidnapped the movement to reform the Articles, wrote what they conceived to be a more, perf a more perfect union, and then managed to get it ratified by the reluctant representatives of an apathetic populace. In Hamilton's case, the love of fame seems to have had some attachment to the icon of empire himself, Julius Caesar. Now, there's evidence to the contrary of this, but Jefferson provides the anecdote that makes it viable. He had portraits in his parlor. One was Bacon, the other one was Locke, and I think Newton. And he called these the greatest men the world had ever produced. On one occasion, when Alexander Hamilton was a guest in Jefferson's house, he had asked about these pictures. Jefferson told him who they were. Uh, Hamilton rebuffed him. And he said this, according to Jefferson, quote, the greatest man that ever lived was Julius Caesar. And Jefferson would conclude of Hamilton in a letter that, quote, while honest as a man, he was nevertheless, quote, as a politician, believing in the necessity of either force or corruption to govern men. An interesting angle appears long before Hamilton's visit to Jefferson. Um, as a champion of the constitutional centralization, Hamilton was the most vigorous nationalist to undertake its defense in print. But before he and Madison had collaborated as Publius on the Federalist Papers project, a very curious pair of response of letters and responses appeared in the New York newspaper. Here's the story. The other two delegates from New York, in addition to Hamilton, left the convention early in disgust of what they perceived as a coup. They returned to New York City, and they informed the state's strongly states' rights governor, who was at the time George Clinton, what was afoot. Now, merely 10 days after the close of, con of the convention, the pro proposed constitution was published in the New York Journal for all the public to read. In that same edition of the New York Journal, September 27, 1787, an open letter, letter to the citizens of New York bore a critique and a solemn warning about the proposal. The letter was signed with the pseudonym Cato. The author was, most people assume, George Clinton, the governor. Now, the name Cato was taken from Cato the Younger, who is an ancient Roman statesman, died in 46 B.C., known for his commitment to freedom and honesty. After Julius Caesar had crossed the Rubicon, had usurped power from the Senate, had, established, had begun establishing his empire, Cato committed suicide. And the message was that he would rather die than suffer the tyranny of, Cedar, of Caesar's military dictatorship. Governor Clinton now saw a group of similar, similarly ambitious would-be Caesars usurping power from the states. He warned the people, therefore, in these terms, quote, Deliberate, therefore, on this new national government with coolness. Analyze it with criticism. Reflect on it with candor. If you find that the influence of a powerful few or the exercise of a standing army 
will always be directed and exerted for your welfare alone and not to the aggrandizement of themselves, then adopt it. If it will not, reject it with indignation. Better to be where you are for the present than insecure forever afterwards. Now within a week, that letter received a response in the same newspaper. And what pen name would the ambitious defender of the Constitution choose in order to oppose Cato? Unbelievably, they wrote, as Caesar. And just like the Caesar who crossed the Rubicon with military force, this young would-be Caesar brandished the threat of military takeover in print, in public, should the people not submit to the proposed government willingly. Referring to George Washington as the American Fabius, he urged Governor Clinton to help the former general's journey to the presidency of a new nation. And he put it in these terms, quote, I would also advise him, that is the governor, to give his vote to the American Fabius. It will be more healthy for this country and this state that he should be induced to accept the presidency of the new government than that he should be solicited again to accept the command of an army. Now Fabius comes from Fabius Maximus, who was a Roman general who won his wars gradually through guerrilla warfare. Instead of meeting superior forces head on, he had broken into small bands and executed numerous small sorties, wore down his enemy's uh, forces willing to fight, and that was the same tactics George Washington had used in many cases in the American Revolution, and so he was referred to in, in some cases as the American Fabius. Scholars for some time considered Hamilton to be the author of the Caesar letters. Now that's been severely questioned uh, by some beginning in the 1950s, I believe, if not certainly 60s. But consensus for some time accepted it as Hamilton based on primary source evidence, which was found by Paul Leister Ford, who was an, author, who was a, an editor of, of early American writers. His evidence was unfortunately lost in a fire of a library, so we can't check it out. Whoever the author was, he was certainly of the same Hamiltonian nationalizing spirit. He was of that party, even if he was a little more extreme. He was very likely of personal association with Hamilton, or at least known to Hamilton. Now what this shows is that there was a nationalist clique in New York in the circles in which Hamilton himself was operating, and that clique was willing to appeal immediately to military force in order to get their constitutional agenda passed, whether the people liked it or not. So here we have the same Hamilton who, during the Newburgh conspiracy, he had urged Washington to leverage the military power to get their agenda passed. Now in the same circles, with the same end justifies the means tactics once again. Governor Clinton, certainly no saint himself, by the way, denounced that idea to the people as a threat. And in his second letter as Cato, he went on to remind the people of the freedom they had just fought for. And here's what he said, quote, Is not your indignation roused at this imperious style? For what did you open the veins of your citizens and expend their treasure? For what did you throw off the yoke of Britain and call yourselves independent? Was it from a disposition fond of change or to procure new masters? If those were your motives, you have your reward before you. Go, retire into silent obscurity and kiss the rod that scourges you. Bury the prospects you had in store that you and your posterity, your posterity would participate in the blessings of freedom. Let the rich and insolent alone be your rulers. Perhaps you are designed by providence as an, as a, an emphatic evidence of the mutability of human affairs to have the show of happiness only, that your misery may seem the sharper, and if so, you must submit. But if you had nobler views, and you're not designed by heaven as an example, are you now to be derided and insulted? Is the power of thinking on the only subject important to you to be taken away? And if perchance you should happen to dissent from Caesar, are you to have Caesar's principles crammed down your throats with an army? 
God forbid. Well, this indeed was a case of Caesar versus Cato. And the governor intended to make it clear to all people that a small group of tyrants was intending to grab power over them. And he continued in his letter, quote, The convention, too, when it in session, shut their doors to the observations of the community, and their members were under obligation of secrecy. Nothing transpired. For the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation, a convention of delegates is formed in Philadelphia. What have they done? Have they revised the Confederation? And has Congress agreed to their report? Neither is the fact. This convention have exceeded the authority given to them and have transmitted to Congress a new political fabric, essentially and fundamentally distinct from it, in which the different states do not retain separately their sovereignty and independency, united by a confederated league, but one entire sovereignty, a consolidation of them into one government. And he continues, The convention had taken on themselves a power which neither they nor the states had a right to delegate to them. It originated in an assumption of power, founded on usurpation, and yet you are unhesitatingly to acquiesce. And if you do not, the American Fabius, if we may believe Caesar, is to command an army to impose it. Now Caesar's final letter response against Cato would reveal his animosity not only to the freedom of the people but to their religion. He wished to see America as a glorious secular empire destined to steal power and uh, begin the decline of what he called Christian nations. And these are his words, quote, when this glorious work is accomplished what may America not hope to arrive at? I will venture to prophesy that the day on which the union under the new government shall be ratified by the American states, that that day will begin an era which will be recorded and observed by future ages as a day which the Americans had marked by their wisdom in circumscribing the power and ascertaining the decline of the ancient nations in Christendom. Now, Hamilton surely realized that Caesar, whoever he was, did not have the upper hand in this political, this particular rhetorical battle. He was playing the role, obviously, of the tyrant, Caesar, against the just lover of freedom, Cato, who was a martyr, and he was threatening a military dictatorship, or at best a civil war, and he was openly opposed to Christian civilization. So he seemed to play the part of the tyrant well, and so Hamilton resolved to change the tactics in the New York Journal. He presented himself as the champion of federalism and liberty, joined with Madison, recruited Jay, and they did the Federalist Papers. These did become a success and probably should be the subject of another talk that I do and supplement to these later, and perhaps we will. So, but let's move on to other matters. The public depreciation of the ancient nations of Christendom struck directly, even if unwittingly, at the true Christian heritage of America. As we saw in the last uh, section of these talks in part three, the Christian feudal system, what was good of it, particularly the emphasis on contracts and property ownership, formed the basis of the settlement of this land. It formed the basis, particularly, of the decentralized nature of government in America. So the nationalist swipe at that heritage Indeed, the prophecy of its decline and fall was an admission of the unbounded tyranny latent in that party. Hamilton's relationship with religion certainly in this regard is of interest, and it's been studied. Uh, historians Douglas Adair and Martin Harvey have studied the issue, and they've determined that there were four periods in Hamilton's life, and this is very important to understand in relation to the development of his politics. Uh, there were four periods. And his religion, his relationship with religion changes throughout these four periods. Number one was his youth. Uh, second was the period of his fabulous rise to fame. Then his partisan political activist period. And then after that, his decline and fall. Now, without explaining each of those in depth, here are the main points. During his very difficult youth, Hamilton was eventually taken in by a devout Presbyterian family. 
He was expected to go through to, to participate in the religious activities. He prayed regularly and he attended worship services and religious education, and that's all recorded, although during this period he never joined a church. And it seems really that during this period he was simply going through the motions because he had to because of his essentially foster parents. Because in the second period of his life, when he's rising to fame and power, his references to faith disappear almost entirely from his writings. And when they do appear, they tend to be negative or almost sacrilegious. Now that's important, and that's what concerns us most here, because during the second and third periods is the period of Hamilton's life in which his uh, permanent influence was most wielded on this nation. And here, in this period, is where his agenda and his worldview are most explicit. Now, as I mentioned, during the second period, which covered his military exploits all the way up to the advance of his stardom, we might say, from 1777 to about 1792, Hamilton appears at best religiously indifferent, at worst mocking of religion. He refers to religion only twice in these 15 years, at least in his extant writings, which are prolific, by the way. And both times it appears in crude jest. In the first, he says that a certain Dr. Mendy fit his mold for a perfect army chaplain, except that the parson, quote, does not whore or drink, suggesting that he expects hypocrisy among his Christian ministers and his chaplains. Now, not ironically, the later editor of Hamilton's writings, when he gets to this letter, it was Henry Cabot Lodge was the editor, scrubbed that phrase, whore, or, out of that letter. And so the addi his edition of the letters, which was all that was available for a long time to the public until about the 50s or 60s, uh, did not include that negative reference. He could, he, it, it looked like a little joke. Well, he doesn't drink. Well, that's not what Hamilton meant. It's not what he said. The fact that uh, Henry Cabot Lodge published his edition in 1904 in the midst of a you know, partisan struggle of the old imperial progressive Republicans and the growing uh, progressive Democrats. Um, and Lodge was a strong progressive in that time period. And for him, Alexander Hamilton was a hero, but also it was a time of a great public display of religion in America during the Progressive Era, and so Hamilton had to be sanitized so that his Christian America, uh, the version at least that was being propagated at the time, uh, that Hamil Hamilton could be fit into that without being um, looked down upon by Christians. In the second reference, Hamilton um, goes on in, in uh, it's, it's fairly an obscure reference, but he's providing a friend with a list of qualifications for a good wife. This is obviously in jest. Uh, he su suggests that the woman should have, quote, a good shape, uh, that she should have a large fortune, preferably, and that she, should that she should both, quote, believe in God and hate a saint. In other words, be nominally Christian, believe in God, that's important, but don't follow the Bible to the letter, okay? Now, it's obvious uh, from these references that he's not taking religious, religion seriously. And aside from those references, we have nothing from Hamilton's own pen on religion during this period. There are a couple anecdotes from other people, but these two, if they're reliable, are unflattering. In Hamilton's third stage, it gets very interesting because it was ushered in during the period of the French Revolution. And this period meant that there were lots of political battles between the Jeffersonians and the Republican Democrats who you know, supported what was going on in France and the Hamiltonian view, which said, no, 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 we have to suppress this, suppress this at all costs. And during this period, Hamilton suddenly waxes overtly religious uh, again. Unfortunately, his main references during this period make it pretty clear that he was only using the religious rhetoric for, public, uh, for political advantage among the public, who was majority Christian. Uh, indeed, he, he actually speaks of religion as, quote, an engine of politics, and explained what he meant by that in, at length in a letter to William Smith in April uh, 10th of 1797. He said this, quote, a politician will consider this, that is religion, as an important means of influencing opinion. 
and will think it a valuable resource in a contest with France to set the religious ideas of his countrymen in active competition with the atheistical tenets of their enemies. This is an advantage which we shall be very unskilled if we do not use to the utmost. Now, just for the record, we mentioned Henry Cabot Lodge just a while ago. When he printed this letter from Hamilton, he suppressed this part of it. In other words, he didn't want to see his progressive Christian America seeing that Hamilton was actually mocking the idea of religion instead of promoting it or leveraging the idea for political gain. Now, Hamilton mounted this very attack against the Jeffersonians who were perceived as being friendly to France and presented them as American admirers of the French Revolution engaged in, in his words, quote, a conspiracy to establish atheism on the ruins of Christianity. Not even close to the truth. But yet, as we just noticed, if you remember, uh, it was this very man, it was this very party for whom Caesar had written earlier sounding the overthrow of the ancient heritage of Christianity and society. So things were backwards. So nothing of Hamilton in this period really speaks of a Christian worldview, only of political leverage and possibly, I should say possibly, uh, certainly hypocrisy. And even the secular historians pick up on this. They say, uh, quote, again this is uh, Adair and, and Harvey, that uh, his life and writings during this period uh, can hardly be a model of Christian faith and practice. And that's an understatement. Now Hamilton does eventually appear to get true religion, and I give it to him, I think he does. But only after the dramatic fall from fame and popularity during this time. In the final four years of his life, after he had fallen from political power, he had become a pariah, during this time, he changed, has a complete change of heart. He begins to pray. Um, he's humble. He focuses on family, focuses on nature, gets into gardening, and prays with his children, and, uh, and things of that nature. He, he, during this time, he, he wrote in opposition against dueling, and yet at the same time, it was a code of honor and when he was challenged to a duel by Alexander Burr, he felt bound to accept it. Nevertheless, he allegedly wrote the evening before that he would waste his shot against Burr and allow Burr to kill him, or at least the opportunity to kill him. Of course, we know he was shot. He, he laid on his deathbed for a day or two. On that deathbed, he pleaded with the Parsons for the sacrament. One of them was not convinced he was a Christian. Only after long pleading, and the parson accepting his faith as genuine wasn't given. And so it appears that Hamilton died truly as a Christian. But all of this came only after his fall from, from public grace and influence, and little too late to affect his politics in a biblical way. Again, Adair and Harvey um, observe that, uh, quote, Hamilton, who in the uh, years of his early success had almost forgotten God, when the years of his greatest power had tried to manipulate God, just as he manipulated the public debt to increase that power, began sincerely seeking God in this time of failure and suffering. Now, that's, that's great for him as an individual, but it doesn't help us any as a nation. Besides, this more private religious period is less referenced as the image of Hamilton's faith. It was his period of manipulating God that factors most heavily in this image of him as a Christian statesman. Ironically, it is his insistence during these years in tirade after tirade that democracy and Christianity were incompatible, that Jefferson, who he called the atheist, was God's enemy, that has left the, the more simple-minded American posterity with the false impression that Hamilton throughout his life was this devout Christian in both thought and practice. But as we have seen, this was not the case. During his most influential years, he was at his most irreligious. And during these times, he had perhaps the largest hand in America in pushing through massive assumptions of power, beginning with the Constitution and extending through many acts 
uh, of legislation, including uh, taxation, military action against Americans, central banking, judicial cases, many other acts of what I would call tyranny. It's tempting to say that his years of tyranny and sacrilege were not ironically synchronized. So that's Hamilton. Now it will come as a surprise to some that George Washington held a virtually identical view of government uh, to Hamilton. He was just a little less outspoken about it, a little more gentleman gentlemanly about it, we could say. Uh, some historians have actually considered Washington as a front for Hamilton's agenda. The public executive counterpart to Marshall's later backdoor judicialism. But Washington often expressed views about, quote, strong and energetic government to rival the best of Hamilton's in substance. Washington had brought the young man, after all, under his wing, made Hamilton his aide de camp during the war, and it was there that Hamilton reapplied his administrative abilities, if you remember right, that were first discovered in the warehouses when he was 12. He reapplied that and realized he could actually have more control in the nation from behind the throne, so to speak, than he could from the spotlight. And that was just the beginning. After the ratification of the Constitution with Washington as the front, Hamilton was ready to run with legislative papers, proposals, all kinds of things. Uh, despite a lethargic start, it took almost a month before the members of Congress showed up to reach a quorum. On April 1st, 1789, the first session of Congress opened. In uh, merely a week, James Madison was proposing new taxes and thus began the history of the federal government. Let the taxing begin. The first actual statute enacted by Congress was the establishment of oaths for the members. The second was the tariff passed on July 4th, 1789. So there you go. Happy 4th of July. We're independent now. Here's your tax bill. It was Hamilton's plan. And even though he wasn't even a member of the president's cabinet yet, Nevertheless, the so-called Hamilton Tariff went through taxed imports, and that strengthened American manufacturing. However, it weakened American farming, which was primarily in the South, by increasing the prices of the manufactured tools they needed and the goods they needed to do their work. And that was a grievance that remained for decades, was argued over for decades, was exacerbated for decades, and became a major cause of the Civil War. Hamilton was thus already exercising significant control in Congress before his promotion to office. Control was the issue. Of course, it had always been his plan. The historian uh, Forrest MacDonald relates uh, this much, quote, Hamilton contemplated an American adaptation of the British scheme of things, with Washington as George III and himself as Robert Walpole. But like Washington, he had to await the event. Well, Hamilton retained that self-important monarchical view of things for the duration of his height of power, and in 1792 he referred to, quote, my administration, and again in another place in 1795, as, quote, the minister. On September 11th, 1789, Washington made the fateful, the fateful appointment. It was confirmed the same day by Congress. Hamilton would be Secretary of the Treasury. But this is only part of that story. Washington informed Hamilton that he would get the job months before he gave it to him, only a few days after he was inaugurated. And that gave Hamilton an important time in which to influence Congress kind of informally to create the position of the Secretary of the Treasury to his liking, with all the powers to his liking. And, and that's exactly what it did. Again, MacDonald, uh, Forrest MacDonald tells us this in his uh, life of, of Hamilton, quote, his hesitancy to make a final commitment, despite his preparations and his dreams, derived from a determination that the conditions of his appointment must be compatible with the success of his grand plan. From his point of view, three conditions were vital. One, uh, one he took for granted, that he would have the support of his friend and erstwhile collaborator James Madison, the ablest and most powerful man in the House of Representatives. 
The second of which he was less confident was that the treasury must be under the control of a single person with ample powers. Unlike, for example, the impotent three-man treasury board that had attempted to administer the Confederation's meager finances in 1784. The third, most important and least certain condition was that the office must have some measure of independence from the executive and permit direct dealings with Congress. It would be the new creation by a centralized Congress of a position of power far beyond anything dreamed of in the Constitution, but nevertheless allowed by that same fabric under the guise of all things necessary and proper. Hamilton created the blueprint for bureaucracy, particularly a bureaucracy of finance, that sits somewhere in between the executive branch and the legislative in that it had direct influence on both, direct influence on legislation that it would enforce, as well as direct oversight of the congressional purse, and Hamilton knew he would be able to exercise some of that power outside of Washington's direct observation. This was just the type of constitutional creativity Hamilton had always envisioned. He cared very little for what final form the convention would produce, as long as he could carve out for himself such a position as this. Indeed, he would later refer to the Constitution as a, quote, frail and worthless fabric propped up by his own powers. And it was his own ingenuity, his own prowess, which he trusted to force his agenda ahead. MacDonald again states it this way, quote, It was almost a matter of indifference to him how the national government was organized. What was important was to organize one and to endow it with as much power in relation to the powers of the states as possible. For if a strong national government could be established on almost any plan at all, and if he could become Minister of Finance, he could personally activate the government to provide for the happiness of the country. End of quotation. By, seven, uh, by September 11th, the position was created just as he desired it. Hamilton did become a Minister of Finance, and two days later, he was at work, which was on a Sunday, by the way. He was soon immersed in financial arrangements with Holland, with France, sometimes with no oversight, sometimes without even knowledge of other people. But the greatest gift in that position came almost immediately when Congress recessed for the fall. It demanded of Hamilton a report on how to improve the public credit. The report was done when Congress returned in January, and it put in play one of Hamilton's long-term goals, the federal government's assumption of state debts. The measure was essentially socialistic in that it would cause an unequal burden of repayment of those debts upon the wealthier states. Indeed, in states that had already paid off large amounts of their debts, to be saddled with the arrears of their neighbors was virtually criminal. But the poorer and the delinquent states were quite cheerful about the prospect, and it's no irony that this very scenario had been part of the Federalist Bill of Sale for the Constitution, um, at least in some states, from day one to those delinquent states. For just one example was the Federalist William uh, Davey tipped his socialist hand during the ratification debates in North Carolina, which, granted, were almost insignificant. He argued this, quote, the whole portion of the state of the public debts must be raised from the people by direct and immediate taxation. But the fact is, sir, it cannot be raised because it cannot be paid. And without sharing in the general impost we shall never discharge our quota of the federal debt. Hamilton's plan was strongly opposed by Jefferson and Madison. Nevertheless, in what has to be the greatest political sellout in all of history, in which you can see the shallowness and the vanity and the self-interest and the uh, giddy exchange of principle for self-service, Hamilton was able to gain the votes of those two men in exchange for moving the U.S. capital to the Potomac River. In other words, in exchange for a guaranteed local influx of prestige and wealth from the capital city to their state of Virginia, these two men allowed the Federalist faction further to centralize power over national finance. We've talked about don't take the cheese. This was a classic case of taking the cheese, if there ever was one, and Hamilton was springing the trap. 
Now, after this came a systematic stream of reports and state papers from Hamilton to the Congress, and the increase in the original Hamilton tariffs came only a year later, in 1790. In December, Hamilton provided a second report on public credit, this time calling for a national bank, a proto-federal reserve, if you will. He won consent for it, and it arrived in February of 1791. Hamilton had argued for the necessity of a national bank as early as April 30th of 1781 in a letter to Robert Morris. And so, in other words, he had been waiting, planning, striving for this moment for over a decade. In the March of 1791, followed his call for a direct tax on liquors, which passed under the, under the you know, banner of raising revenue. This precipitated the tax revolt known as the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, which Hamilton and Washington personally rode out on horseback to help squash at the head of their newly centralized 13,000-man army. But before they could do this, they had to pass two militia acts in 1792 in order to empower the new government to conscript every able-bodied male from 18 to 45 and then call them up at the president's will. By comparison, we'll talk about this in a later uh, topic. When Shay's rebellion erupted just six years earlier over a truly corrupt taxation scheme, the governor of the state was unable to muster more than a few hundred men to go fight for his corrupt cause because the Constitution was not yet around, not yet in place, and the national government could not commandeer the other state militias, and the state militia was only voluntary. Thus, as in a biblical system, when a would-be soldier perceived a cause to be corrupt, he's allowed to refuse to fight. Not so under Hamilton and Washington. Everyone could be forced to fight for the national government, even against their own fellow American citizens. Now, when not threatening otherwise innocent farmers from horseback, Hamilton and Washington furthered their collusion for protectionism and corporate welfare. Haven't heard that before, probably, I suspect. The effort would eventuate Hamilton's report on the subject of manufacturers, a very famous document, calling for the regulation of trade via more tariffs and direct subsidies to favored industries and corporations and government projects. This idea of corporate welfare uh, had been in mind in both, for both Hamilton and Washington for some time. During that very first Congress, Washington addressed a joint session on January 8th of 1790. His vision for America was in scope, by comparison to the old decentralized Puritan ideals, uh, an FDR New Deal, a Wilson War State wrapped into one. He urged the need, quote, to be prepared for war, and quote, as, as, quote, one of the most effectual means of preserving peace. Toward this end, he encouraged the Congress to, quote, promote such manufactories as tend to render them independent on others for essential, particularly for military supplies. This call was answered by Hamilton's report on the subject. Note that it was a call not only to provide a government-funded stimulus plan for manufacturing, but especially to provide for it in regard to military supplies. In other words, Washington created the original military-industrial complex in peacetime. Not often recognized as a big government, big spender. In that first ever State of the Union address, Washington called for greater federal control and spending on nearly everything you can imagine. Manufacturing, military, defense, particularly the quote, comfortable support of our officers and soldiers. Uh, for Indian suppression, for agriculture, commerce, uh, transportation, the post office, science and education, including a national university. And perhaps, just in case the actual funds weren't there to do this, he expressed, quote, pub, uh, support for public credit, and that is a national debt. And all of this, he added, was, quote, for the welfare of our country. It was the nation's first cutting of its teeth on the welfare warfare state, and those teeth just happened to be, by legend, wooden. In reality, they were not wooden, they were just rotten. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to bash Washington. 
I mean, I, I love the fact. I love the fact that he went to church sometimes. I love the, the pictures of him kneeling in Valley Forge openly in, in, uh, openly in the woods in prayer, even though that's probably a piece of historical fiction. Uh, I just have to point out, however, how much a centralized, subsidized, nationalized everything contradicts the basic freedoms espoused in the Declaration of Independence and the Bible. For however sincerely Washington may have championed his faith privately, even publicly, he did not extend it to all areas of life. As a result, we've ended up with a form of tyranny, with the all-seeing eye of Washington sitting on top of it. And the precedence of subsidy and regulation set by him and Hamilton, while different in degree, differ not at all in principle from the socialistic schemes we have today, and just the same in the name of, quote, welfare. It should not surprise us then when we see Justice Marshall legislating Hamilton's state papers from the, vent, from the bench, that the view we get is one of gradual national tyranny over state and local freedoms. It was designed to impinge upon us from every branch of the national government until all of American life was ruled by a Hamilton propped up, quote, worthless fabric, the Constitution. And of course, this had been the design of the nationalists all along, despite the fact that they often denied it, especially in the Federalist Papers, to the public. In 1821, a Washington, D.C. printer and politician named Joseph Gales printed extracts from Robert Yates's notes upon the Constitutional Convention. Yates, remember, was the delegate from New York, one of the two who left and went home. Upon receiving a copy of these notes, Madison wrote a letter to Gales in which he dismissed Yates as partisan and prejudiced, as if he himself was not. But in that letter, Madison notably confided one of his true purposes at the convention, and this was extremely important. That purpose was, quote, um, was among other things to take from that state the important power over its commerce. Uh, perhaps Madison felt safe at this late date, some 32 years after the fact, telling it like it was. He was just quite open about his anti-state agenda. And even though he later broke vociferously with Hamilton and helped author the Virginia Resolution of 1798, which advocates the doctrine of inter interposition by states against intrusive federal laws, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, but this, uh, helpful as it was conceptually, uh, it was little too late on Madison's part, especially when you consider the ambition with which he had earlier destroyed states' rights during the constitutional uh, settlement and remembered doing so openly in 1821 in his letters. Now, while containing many nuances and qualifications and explanation, all ingenious in a way that Madison in that era seems gifted above all others, he gives a simple enough explanation of the new government. It was designed as a means to bypass state laws and act directly upon individuals within the states. And he wrote this openly to Jefferson in the fall of 1787 as ratification was going on. He said, quote, Hence was embraced the alternative of a government which instead of operating on the states should operate without their intervention on the individuals composing them. Now what these men, what this triumvirate of Washington and Hamilton and Madison accomplished was a revolution in government conceived of very early by some men, including Hamilton, designed for the express cause of assuming every power of the states except for a few local taxation, local property disputes. By means of centralizing power in a type of coup. Now, in an early letter to James Duane, Hamilton expressed his regret that, quote, an excess, an, an excess of the spirit of liberty left the states with too much freedom. And this must be remedied either by taking direct control of Congress and assuming authority over the states, which, by the way, Hamilton says he believed Congress already had anyway. 
didn't even need a constitution to do it, or by calling a convention for the purpose of circumventing them. So we have seen quite a bit now from all of this, and there's much more to cover if we wanted to, probably more than you'd ever want to see, of how the original freedom of states' rights was lost. Now, couple this with the lessons of lost localism that we covered in the last uh, series of talks, and the picture's pretty gruesome. But it's not where it has to end. We can recover a vision of decentralized government, of freedom, even at the state level, one which is devoid of all the 19th century baggage, as I said, of slavery, et cetera, and all that stuff. We can recover the vision and we can think of some practical steps toward restoring state freedom today. And we'll talk about those in the next discussion.